Morning, everybody. Can you hear me? There it is. All right. How many of you guys felt like when Drew took the microphone off the stand and said, how's everybody doing, that like a stand-up comedy routine was about to start? <laughs> we were like ripe for a funny thing happened to me on the way to worship practice this morning. I want to tell you all that. Uh, welcome. So good to have you guys here with us this morning. Um, one other detail I want to add about School of Theology, which like Drew said, is starting tomorrow and we'd love to have all of you in there. But one detail is um, typically throughout the year we offer membership classes where you can come and kind of learn some of the foundational doctrines that the church believes and also just some kind of details about our church. Because we're in the midst of kind of revamping how we do that for this School of Theology offering, we're also accepting that as kind of a membership class. So if you're new to the church, if you'd like to become a member, you can come and take the class and that will also count as a membership class. And then um, you'll just do that and have a meeting with the campus pastor. So I know there are many of you who have talked to us about wanting to pursue membership here at South Valley Community Church. And um, this is a more intensive, more educational version of what we would normally do, but you are more than welcome to come and take the course and have it satisfy that membership requirement too. So we'd love to have you there for that. Now, before we get into the passage for today, there's a story I want to tell you, and I've told it here before. It was many years ago, so it'll be new to most of you. But if you've heard it before, suffice it to say, it's, it is the story that has to be told whenever you talk about the subject we're going to talk about today. It's a true story about a computer programmer and writer named Paul Ford who seven or eight years ago recognized that his anxieties were starting to get the best of him. He was a guy who had a busy work schedule, he had busy family life, and he was starting to feel like, man, my relationships are suffering, my work is suffering, I cannot get control of this anxiety. And so while he was in the middle of experiencing that, one day he was doing what many of us have to do throughout the week, and he was just like deleting spam emails. How many of you guys, rather than unsubscribing one time, just continue to receive dozens of spam emails and just delete them over and over again. So he was in that situation. He was just pressing delete over and over again. And it occurred to him while he was doing that, you know, I wish that I could take my anxious thoughts and just delete them the way I'm deleting the spam email. And because he was a computer programmer, he took that idea and ran with it and created something called Anxiety Box with the subtitle, Stop Making Yourself Anxious, That's Our Job. And here's what Anxiety Box was. Again, this is all true because it sounds so crazy. Anxiety Box was, at its heart, a spam bot. And for those who aren't familiar with what a spam bot is, you've probably talked to one, whether you knew it or not. But a spam bot is a computer program that can mimic human speech patterns and human writing patterns. So you give this computer program some parameters, and it will create sentences that sound with like varying levels of success like a person. And so Paul Ford created a spam bot, and the way it worked was like this. You would give it your name, you'd give it your email address, you would type in the top three or four things you were anxious about, and AnxietyBot would email you your own anxious thoughts 10 to 12 times a day so that you could delete them. <laughs> and his whole idea was, you know what? If I can just see these, my anxious thoughts, like in this kind of silly, stilted, spam bot voice, and I can delete them, I'll see them for what they really are, just like mental spam, and I'll be able to kind of have control over it. And so the results were, in my opinion, hilarious. I brought some to show with you, to show to you, rather. These are some examples of the kind of things that AnxietyBot would send. These are all real. I don't agree with all the people who say you are weak, need, and monstrous. So you're just going about your day, that pops into your email, and you can just delete it. Or this one. People pretend to be nice to you, but they're thinking weird-faced. How many of you guys have experienced that at some point? This, is, this might be my favorite one. The simple reason that you are not happy is that you are a liar and not funny. 
No matter how many times I read that one, it's, I love how just matter-of-fact it is. And then this one, the, the last one, this one cuts deep for many of us. It says, your mom and dad would never say anything, but they so want to know why you choose to be like garbage. And the reason, the reason I love that one is I feel like that's like, like the robot is starting to become more sophisticated because there's multiple layers there. It's like, it's about your parents, which is already more messed up. Then it's like, hey, they're not going to say this to you but let me give you the inside scoop about what they're thinking. They want to know why you choose to be like garbage. So 10 to 12 times a day, he would get emails like this and he would just delete them. And he thought again that, you know, if I can do this, I'll master my anxieties. And it became incredibly popular at the time. Tons of people were subscribing, but the ultimate end of the story is that it didn't work. Because if you go to anxietybox.com today, you will find it's no longer operational. And this is true. The reason Paul Ford said he had to shut it down was because all of the success was, guess what? Making him anxious. That's true. So it didn't work, at least not for Paul Ford. And at the end of the day, like for all of us, we know that wouldn't work intuitively. It's kind of funny. And if it was still around, I'd probably do it just to see if I could get some really good funny ones out of it. But we know deep down that anxieties aren't really like mental spam. I mean, anxiety in, in various forms, various levels of intensity, is something that, that absolutely every single person has dealt with at some point. You could be someone who deals with it a lot, constantly. You could be somebody who it's, it's just if you have a really good reason to be anxious, but we've all felt anxious at some point, and we know there is no mechanism for just like deleting an anxious thought. And so when you're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, and you come across Jesus saying, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious, that can be kind of hard to hear, especially if you're an anxious person by nature. I mean, it's not like we choose to be anxious on purpose, right? I mean, nobody wakes up and goes, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to experience crippling anxiety. So you read this by itself and go like, how can Jesus say that? How can he just say, don't be anxious? Like if I had a choice in the matter, I would of course stop, but I, I can't decide that for myself. The truth is, and this is what I hope we'll see together over the next half hour or so, is that when you dig into what Jesus says throughout this section, because he's going to give that command three times, do not be anxious. But as he expands on what he's saying, he gives you the reasons why the Christian ought not be anxious. And he begins to give us the tools, I believe, to face our anxieties and do something about them. This is one of, in my opinion, as somebody who has wrestled with anxiety throughout my life, one of the most deeply encouraging sections in all of Scripture truly. But before we dive into it, there's a word here that we have to focus on. Anytime a section starts with this word, I feel like it's an opportunity to teach a very basic Bible reading trick and tool that will serve you, hopefully, for the rest of your life. Anytime you're starting a new section, especially if it's like, you know, you're picking up the Bible to read the first time that day, and you see the word, therefore, you have something to do. Some of you will already know this because there's even a cute, catchy little way to remember it. When you see a therefore, what do you ask? Anybody know? What's the therefore, therefore? That's all you have to remember. Because therefore is never there for no reason. Therefore is a, a word that connects what just came to what is coming. It's a way of saying everything I'm about to say is on the basis of everything I just said. And so if you don't know what he just said, you are not ready to proceed. So if you're reading through a long section and you see a therefore, it's a good time to pause and go, okay, wait, am I up to speed? Have I been paying attention? And like today, if you're starting from scratch at Matthew 6.25 and you see therefore, it's, it means you've got to stop and like re-familiarize yourself with what just came or you're going to miss the logical connection that's being made. So here's one verse prior, just to put us in the, in the proper context. 
Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you. So go back to last week if you were here. If you weren't, I encourage you to go watch on YouTube or listen on the podcast. But Isaac last week talked about this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about earthly treasure versus heavenly treasure. And he's saying, for the Christian, we don't want to be in the habit of storing up material things on this earth, things that will not ultimately last. We instead want to be rich toward God. We want to be saving up things for eternity, for our eternal future. And he ended with that absolute gut punch of a verse, Matthew 6, 24, where Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. And it's really interesting because most of the time when we talk about money, the metaphor is not of it as our master. Usually the metaphor is that it's a tool for us. So you've probably heard at some point a Christian say, and there's some truth to this, so I'm not disparaging it completely, but you've probably heard someone say something like, well, money itself is not bad. It's all about what you do with money. And that might be true, but that's a metaphor where money is a tool. And Jesus here is saying money is a master that you can choose to submit yourself to. It's a really, really powerful and striking metaphor. So he says on the basis of that fact that the Christian doesn't want to store up earthly treasure, we want to store up heavenly treasure, and you can't serve money and God, you can only serve one. On the basis of that, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So right off the bat, it's almost like Jesus is saying your anxiety about these material things can serve almost as like a a litmus test or a barometer for what master you're serving. Because the servants of money will worry about these things, but the servants of God don't need to. Again, that's kind of hard-hitting right out of the gate. You're like, well, first of all, it doesn't feel like it's that easy to just dismiss anxiety from my life. And secondly, I mean, I feel like there's some really good reasons to be anxious, especially over the last couple of years. You don't even have to be a person who's kind of like wired for anxiety to start feeling anxious. There's stuff in your future, in your present that makes you feel like, no, I mean, I'm worried, but it's, it's about stuff that actually might go wrong or horrible things that might actually happen. So why? That's the question you should ask. Why should I not be anxious about my life? And the good news is Jesus immediately answers this question in what I think is truly one of the most beautiful illustrations in all of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? There's a temptation and a really natural way to misread what this image is about. Because it feels sort of intuitive to say, hey, birds don't worry about stuff, so be like the birds. We make the image about the birds. So it'd be like, birds don't freak out, be like a bird. And the truth is that metaphor wouldn't be great anyway because birds actually spend most of their day trying to find food, you know what I mean? So it's not a, it's, it wouldn't be a great image, but more importantly, it's not the point Jesus is making at all. The center of this image is not the birds, it's the God who feeds them. What Jesus is saying in this image is he's trying to show the listener, the reader in our case, 
the truth about how reality actually works. And modern Western people like us need this really bad. Because the truth is, even if you grew up Christian or even if you become a Christian at some point in your life, just by virtue of where and when you live, you have inherited a default view of the world, a default cosmology that is what we call deistic. And deism, just kind of oversimplifying it, painting with a broad brush, deism is a belief that God is not actually involved in his creation in an ongoing way. So deism says there's a creator, God maybe, but we can't really know anything about him. And what he did is he made the world, started kind of all these natural processes running, and then he stepped back, isn't watching, isn't involved, doesn't care. And prior to deism, there was a Greek view called Epicureanism that was very similar. And, and this has infused the Western world in a really massive, like incalculable way. They call it the watchmaker God view. Because the idea is that God makes the stuff, gets it going, and then steps back. And so you as a Christian, and I as a Christian, we don't think that way. Like, if you asked us, well, what do you think about God? We would say that we believe he's involved in the world, but most of us actually live our lives in a deistic way. As if it's up to us to work with a, a world that's just kind of like go in its own way, but we don't act as if there's a God who's actively involved in the world every day. But the Bible consistently paints that picture of God. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. And look what Jesus is saying here. God feeds the birds. He causes the flowers to grow. This is not a, a dead, deistic creation. God is intimately involved in everything that's happening every day. So Jesus is not saying, birds don't worry about this stuff, so you should just be like the birds. He's saying, God is actively involved in the world to the point that he feeds birds. And guess what? He cares about you more than he cares about birds. And that sounds so simple, but that is transformative for most Christians when you actually let that sink in. God is actively involved in everything that happens in the world around me. And he cares about me and what happens to me. I mean, that viewpoint is the most immediately anxiety-relieving thing if you can really let it sink in. Says, God takes care of birds. And then he digs a level deeper and says, it's not just God in some kind of like general, you know, unknowable way. He says, it's your father. And think about the intimacy, the familialness of that image. Your father is in control of everything. He goes on and says, therefore. So there's another therefore. This time it points back to what we just read. So it's really helpful. He's just kind of continuing. He goes, in light of the fact that you have an all-powerful heavenly father who is actively sustaining every process in the world and who cares about you, therefore, again, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? I'm going to pause here for a minute because this is really important for us to recognize. When we in the modern world, most of us, hear, what will I eat, what will I drink, what will I wear, those are questions of preference. It's like, what do I want to eat? I know I'm going to eat today, but what would I like to eat? I know I'm going to have plenty of water today, but what would I like to drink? I have plenty of clothes. Which ones should I wear? That's not the, the case for Jesus' original audience. When Jesus is talking to the Jewish people in the first century in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, what shall we eat? He's talking to people for whom the question is, where will I find food for my family? What will I drink is, 
Like, where am I going to find clean water? And what will I wear is, am I going to have the clothes to make it through the cold part of the year? And so it's important to know he's not talking here about, like, preference. He's talking to them about necessity. And that's really, really important for what he's about to say. He says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Again, there's an easy misunderstanding we can have with this verse because it almost sounds like don't be anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, and what you're going to wear because that stuff doesn't matter. And that's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, he's saying the exact opposite of that. He's going to say halfway through the verse, your father knows that you need them all. That's why it's so important to slow down and realize like eat, drink, wear is not about like what restaurant do I want to go to. He's telling them don't be anxious about whether or not you will eat tomorrow. So it's not, don't worry about this stuff because it's not important. The reason you don't worry about this, remember the therefore, the reason you don't worry about this is because your father knows that you need them all. And your father, as we just said, is absolutely in control of everything that happens in the world. Again, it's this deeply comforting image. Because your father knows what you need. And so what you should do, this ties back again to the section before, You should seek the will of your master. Seek the kingdom, seek the righteousness of God, and all these things will be added to you. Now think about even farther back, the Lord's Prayer. We gave a challenge for those of you who don't have it memorized to try to memorize it this year. Hopefully some of you have done that. Think about the sequence of the Lord's Prayer. What does it say? It says, Our Father who art in heaven. So you start with the identity of God and the fact that he is your Father and that he is holy. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. So the first line is God, who he is, his holiness. The second line is your kingdom come, your will be done. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what do you say? Give us this day our daily bread. The Lord's Prayer puts these things in the same order that Jesus is suggesting here. He's saying you focus your energy and attention on the kingdom of God, on the righteousness of God, on living according to God's ways and according to God's rule and trying to bring that rule into the world that you live in and God will take care of your needs. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, he's a famous preacher. He said, mind thou thy Lord's business, and he will see to thy business. I just like that because there's thou's and thy's in it, and it makes it feel pregnant with importance in a way that it doesn't otherwise. But part of why this is so significant is because Jesus has just said, you seek God's kingdom, God's righteousness, God will give you what you need. He knows what you need. In fact, he knows what you need better than you know what you need. And that's an important point to make on the side there, because he's not saying, if you seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness, then God will give you everything that you want. And that's very different. Part of submitting to God as your king and your master and your Lord is recognizing he knows what I need better than I do, and in his infinite wisdom, what I need might not be what I want. In fact, what I need might be very, very different than what I want. And think of some of the heroes of the faith, people like the Apostle Paul and Peter and all of the other early leaders of the church and Jesus Christ himself. What did they need? Probably less than you and I want in our life. And we have the third repetition. Jesus says, therefore, again, continuing that train of thought, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And I love this one because it's almost like this acknowledgement that there is going to be anxiety. He's not saying like, live in a blissful world where there's never anything to worry about. 
He's saying, don't let them control you. Don't start thinking about all of this stuff down the road and trying to be the master of your own destiny. Today is enough. Trust God beyond that. And I find that kind of acknowledgement of the fact that, that like, today we'll have anxiety to be tremendously helpful and encouraging as a person who's dealt with anxiety. And I praise God. In my own life, I've really seen God's faithfulness to me and that my anxieties have decreased over the last few years to the lowest point they've ever been in my entire adult life. But, but I have absolutely experienced in my life borderline crippling anxiety. And again, like I said at the beginning, there's kind of more than one way to experience anxiety. For some people, it's very practical. It's like connected exactly to what you're anxious about. I'm anxious because I have a meeting that I'm nervous about or because this relationship is suffering or because I'm not sure if we're going to be able to pay the bills. And then if that thing gets taken care of, the anxiety goes away with it. That's kind of the standard way that people experience anxiety. And everybody's experienced that at some point. But there's another subset of people and a growing subset of people in our world over the last 50, 100 years who experience what we call general anxiety. And this is anxiety that's not necessarily directly connected to any particular thing. And there's nothing that you could like do or resolve that would just make the anxiety go away. Anxiety for those people, and this is how I've, I've experienced a lot of my adult life, involves just this kind of constant presence of anxiety that you might not even know when you wake up in the morning where it's coming from. And I know just from the statistics that in a room this size, there's dozens of people for whom this is your experience. You wake up every morning with this absolute tangled knot of anxiety in your gut, and you don't even know what it's about. But you'll find plenty of things throughout the day to make it about that, right? You know what I mean? Some of you guys are nodding. You know what I'm talking about. You, you can start thinking, well, what, what am I anxious about? Well, I've got this coming up. It must be that. Oh, but I've also got this going on. And, and yesterday in my conversation with my friend, I said this when I should have said that. So that's pro And you start almost like assigning this big mass of anxiety to all the things in your life. And I think there's kind of two primary ways that the, the truly anxious person does that. We either, I, I, I like to say there's two kinds of people. There's like under the carpet people and then there's hamster wheel people with anxiety. So some people, it's like you have this big feeling of anxiety and you go, okay, but I have to survive today. So I'm just going to put it under the rug and not think about it for a while. People who do that, does your anxiety cease to exist when you try to stop thinking about it on purpose? No, of course not. Other people do my preferred method. I say that sarcastically, which is the hamster wheel method. You take your anxieties and you obsessively think about them over and over and over again in a way that's ultimately fruitless. It's not leading anywhere, but it makes you feel like you're sort of dealing with it because you're thinking about it. And you just spin your wheels on your anxieties all day long. Anybody in the room have any familiarity with what that might feel like? Yeah, there we go in the soup. Thank you. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. You leave a conversation with a friend and go, oh, I cannot believe I said that. They think I'm so dumb. They're laughing about me right now. They're talking about how I said this when I should have said that. And meanwhile, that person completely forgot they talked to you already. They're like, on to the next thing. The next day in the shower, you're like, that's what I should have said. The shower is the ultimate place for what I should have said, huh? Whether it's an argument or something you're anxious about, like if I was half as articulate as I am in my brain in the shower, I would be like the master of argumentation. Anxiety for people who have that kind of deep-seated, unending supply of worry can be debilitating. 
And then you come to a section of Scripture like this and you go, okay, I get it. I understand that God is in control. And I understand that if I fully believed that and grasped that, it would, it would give me relief from my anxiety. But how do I actually, like, appropriate that for myself? And this is where, like, the less anxious person can be with the best intentions in the world. Very, very unhelpful, right? So how many of you who are anxious have had someone tell you, like, don't worry about it? And you're like, Awesome. If only it had occurred to me to not worry about it, I wouldn't have to deal with this horrible fear and worry and anxiety that I'm experiencing. And I say that up front because what I'm about to say, what I'm about to show you from Scripture, can sound like the Christian version of that, which is just give it to God. And again, with good intentions, some people can say that in a way that's equally unhelpful. Just give it to God. And you're like, yeah, I get it, but what's the mechanism for that? And that's where I think the example of Scripture is incredibly helpful. Paul says it like this, do not be anxious about anything. Very similar to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And I love this verse because he says, do not be anxious about anything, but when you are, submit your requests to God. So there's the, the kind of command given, don't be anxious, but then the follow-up that's very human of saying, but you're going to be, and when you are, here's what I want you to do with it. So again, it's like a more nuanced version of, of just give it to God. And I think if you want to know what it looks like to submit your anxieties to God, the best example we have is found in dozens and dozens of psalms. The psalms, beautiful hymn book of Israel, all the songs that the Israelites would sing for thousands of years, and most of them more of them than any other category are psalms of lament. They're psalms that involve suffering and hardship and crying out to God in the midst of, of pain and difficulty and fear. And in those, we find example after example of what it looks like to take something that you're worried about, something that you're afflicted by, and submit it to God. And so I have an example I want to show you. Like I said, there's tons of examples of this, dozens of them. Some of them are very long and drawn out and beautiful, but the one I'm going to show you is, is incredibly concise. Psalm chapter 3 third psalm, and it's, it's, we're going to get it in four slides, but you're going to see the movements of what I think is the Bible's way for you to see what submitting your anxieties to God looks like. The psalmist starts out by saying, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And this is important because it starts with the psalmist acknowledging a real problem. It's not imaginary. It's not dismissive. He's not like, oh, I'm just worried for no reason. He says, no, there's, I've got a problem to deal with. I have countless enemies rising against me. They want to kill me. And then to make matters worse, they're saying about me, God will not save him. And this is the plight of the psalmist, and that's where he starts. He starts at the bottom, going, I'm terrified. My enemies want to kill me, and they're saying that you won't save me. But then watch what he does. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. You see the word selah there? You're going to see it every time, so just so it's not bothering you. Um, that's a mark where I would love to tell you what it means. The problem is no one knows what it means. So it's in a bunch of the Psalms. It's probably some sort of a liturgical marker for something that the singing group of Israelites are supposed to do at that point. Could be like a pause, could be a physical thing that they're supposed to do. We don't know. One article I read online suggested that that marks the place for a face-melting guitar solo. And I'm, uh, I'm partial to that theory. I think it's unlikely. Um, 
So yeah, when you see that, just know that's there because we preserve that in the Bible because we see it in the manuscripts, but the meaning of it has been lost. We don't actually know exactly what it was there for. So it says, he, he takes this problem he has. I have many foes who are rising against me, and they're saying there's no salvation, but I'm interrupting that, and I am declaring what I know to be true in the midst of it. The problem is real, but in the midst of the problem, he says, but Lord, I know you're a shield around me. And when I'm downcast, you lift my head. And when I cry to you, you answer me. So he reminds himself of the truth of who God is, and then he takes action by crying aloud to the Lord for help. Now, here is is one of my favorite things about this. When he says this, this is so powerful and it's so different. Notice, he says, O Lord, in all capitals. Now, some of you won't be familiar with this, but when you're reading in the Old Testament, there's actually two different words that get translated Lord. If you see Lord with regular lowercase letters, that's translating the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord. If you see Lord with all caps like this, which you see all over the Old Testament, that's translating the personal name of Israel's God, Yahweh. So when you see Lord in all caps, it means Yahweh. So look at this. His enemies said about him, there is no salvation for him in God. General category, God. But when he responds to that, he says, but you owe Yahweh, because he knows God. He's speaking personally to God by name. That's so powerful. And it's similar. Think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We just read this. He said, he doesn't say, God knows what you need. He says, your Father knows what you need. And the psalmist has this personal, intimate relationship with God. And here's the response. He says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me. So he has this response. He cries out to God, and God helps him, and he can rest. And then he wakes again, recognizes the sustaining power of God. And then, and this is important, his problem is not like magically dealt with. There's still thousands of people who have set themselves against him. So he has enemies against him. They say there's no salvation in God. He interrupts that flow of thought and says, no, I know that God is my salvation. I cry for help and he hears me. So thousands have set themselves against me. The situation hasn't changed. What's changed is I will not be afraid. And then he concludes by saying, arise, Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and break the teeth of the wicked. And then in direct contrast to what his enemies said about him at the beginning, He says, salvation belongs to Yahweh and blessing be on your people. So you see the process that the psalmist just went through. Real problem, real fear and anxiety. But then an acknowledgement of the truth of what he knows about God. He cries out to help, to God for help. God helps him and sustains him. And then he faces the problem that he has, the very real problem that he has from a place of, of undiluted courage and strength. That's the pattern brothers and sisters. I'm convinced both from Scripture and from my own life, that's the pattern that Christians are meant to follow. So when Jesus says, do not be anxious, I do not believe he's saying, don't ever have any kind of fear or anxiety in your life. I think he's trying to remind the Christian, if you know the truth, then you don't have to be a passive recipient of anxiety anymore. There are actions that you take against it in your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds. You seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You remember who is in charge of the world and that that person is your father. And what this looks like in real life, at least in my real life, is that you take 
that giant ball of anxiety, and instead of putting it under a rug or putting it on a hamster wheel, you force that anxiety, whatever form it's in, to contend with the truth of the gospel. You say, you acknowledge it. This is what I feel. This is what I think. But I'm going to force that through the filter of God's promises for me, of the truth of the gospel, of the truth of the character of God and the promises of God, of the truths of things like what Jesus said, that God is in control of the world and he cares about me and knows what I need. You acknowledge the fear and the anxiety, but you force it to contend with the truth of Scripture. So if you find yourself in a moment of anxiety, feeling like, man, everybody hates me, I'm worthless, you remind yourself, you take that, acknowledge it, but then you say, you know what? I may feel that way, but the creator of heaven and earth saw fit in his infinite wisdom to love me and to give himself for me. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. I am not worthless. I am not unlovable. I am loved by God, rescued by God, member of the family of God. You force that anxious thought through that filter of truth. And if it's about your future or your present or things that are going on in your life, you remind yourself maybe a hundred times a day on a bad day, right? But you remind yourself, God feeds his birds and he cares about me more than he cares about them. And again, you might have to take that, that process through to its end a dozen times on some days. But if you can make it reflexive, a reflex that I feel anxiety but I'm bringing it through a process. And by the way, this is something that's really important to say because anxieties happen at different levels for different people. And for some of us, it's not enough to just apply kind of like thinking and prayer and things like that. And, and, and for some of us, God's way of helping you might also involve your family, your community, a pastor, a small group, a therapist, or any other number of interventions. So I'm not saying like, no matter what your anxiety is, all you have to do is apply this kind of thought process. But I'm saying for the vast majority of us, we will benefit hugely, especially if you're wired anxious like I am. Benefit hugely from taking your anxieties and forcing them through that process of dealing with the truth. Because you don't always feel the truth, right? But if you know what it is, you can take that anxious feeling and force it through the filter of God's love for you and God's provision for you, and God's promises to you. So these are the three things I think we get from this passage. The first one is, is so pivotal and so important because it's what Jesus says as the action that you take. Seek first his kingdom. And there's something deeply practical about this. This is a way of demonstrating where your allegiance lies. You can only have one master, who is it? God. Then I'm going to be about his business. I'm going to be seeking his kingdom. I'm going to be seeking his righteousness. And there's also something deeply, deeply practical about that. Because when your attention is on something other than yourself, that alone has an anxiety-relieving thing to it. I'm not thinking about myself and my situation. I'm thinking about God. And by the way, the thing I'm thinking about is something infinitely more important than myself and my feelings and something that is guaranteed if you believe the promises of Scripture, it is guaranteed to be successful and good and right. So you seek his kingdom. Seek his righteousness. You submit your anxieties to God. That's what we just talked about. That You get in the process, or in the practice rather, of having it be a reflex that when I have an anxious thought, that anxious thought becomes an anxious prayer. Make it automatic just by practice. And if my experience is any kind of indication, that could take years of practicing that skill. 
You might catch yourself halfway through the day realizing, I've been spinning my wheels about this thing I'm worried about over and over again. Don't go straight to guilt. I didn't even think to pray about it. I'm the worst Christian. I've got a new thing to add to the hamster wheel. No, stop and say, I am taking this anxiety and submitting it to God in a tangible, practical way. God, I feel like my family is not going to make it through this, but I believe that you care about me, that you love me, that you are the God who is actually involved in the lives of your creatures, of your creation, and that you are my Father, and you want good things for me, and you know what's best for me. So help me. And again, rinse and repeat. That might, take, that might be something you're doing all day long, depending on the state you're in. And then finally, and I think this is so crucial, remember who your Father is. This is part of why it's so important and why we encouraged all of you two weeks ago to start the process of praying the Lord's Prayer every single day, multiple times a day. If you wake up in the morning and the first thing on your lips is, Our Father in heaven. That's such a grounding and centering thing to remember. The creator and sustainer of the universe calls me his son, calls me his daughter. So we're going to go to communion. And I want to encourage you during this time, if you forgot um, to grab it, you can run to the back and grab one, no worries. I won't think you're offended at me or anything. I want to tell you something um, that can very easily sound trite, can very easily sound dismissive, and I just want you to, to hear from me that what I'm about to say, I'm not saying it in a dismissive way or in a simple way. I'm saying it with all the seriousness that I can possibly muster, and not on the basis of my own authority, but on the basis of what we're holding in our hands. I want to tell you, anxious Christian, you are okay. If you're here today and you are experiencing a season of horrible anxiety, I'm telling you, if you trust in Jesus, you are okay. You're going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And I'm not saying that on any kind of authority of my own. I'm saying that because of the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus Christ for you. That you, your eternal destiny is secure. Your relationship with the creator of the universe is secure. You have been bought with a price and given a seat at the table of God. And so it doesn't mean your problem is going to magically resolve today. It might not. Your worst possible fear about this situation you're in might happen. And I'm here to tell you, you're okay because of what Jesus did for you. Amen? Let's stand together. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after he broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the remission of sins for a new covenant. As long as you do this, you proclaim my death and resurrection until... I come again. So we remember the sacrificial death of Jesus that bought you security with God. Father, I am so grateful to be able to call you that. What an incredible thing to speak with my mouth to the creator of the heavens and the earth and call you Father. Lord, I pray that you would remind everyone in the room, and especially your children who are anxious today, who are anxious this year, or who have been anxious for the last two years. Lord, I pray that they would feel a deep sense of real comfort from you, that your spirit, who you call the comforter, 
would minister to their hearts and souls today with the knowledge that you love them, that the the creator and sustainer of the universe knows their name, knows their circumstances, knows their anxiety, and cares about it. I pray that that would, would be a deeply recognized thing in the hearts and minds of everyone in the room today who is anxious. Lord, we thank you that you have dealt with our greatest problem, our sin, our rebellion, our distance from you, that you have resolved it 2,000 years ago, that it is done forever, and that whatever lesser worries we might have, our greatest worry, our greatest need has been dealt with. We thank you for that, and we 